There's an old Peanuts cartoon where Linus and Lucy are staring out the window at this torrential downpour, and their conversation is as follows. Lucy, looking very concerned, says, boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? Linus replies, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again, and the sign of the promise is the rainbow. Lucy, now smiling, says, you've taken a great load off my mind. And Linus replies, sound theology has a way of doing that. Sound theology has a way of taking great loads off of your mind. Knowing the Bible, God's word, and what it teaches us about God and about his character can take a great load off of your mind. And that's what we want to do today. We want to look at the Bible. We want to look at God's word and see what it teaches us about God, about ourselves, And since this is Easter, what God's word teaches us about death and resurrection. If you're visiting today, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter. It's a book in the Bible that was written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. And it just so happens that in our exposition of this book, we are at today, chapter 3, verse 18. So it just so happens on Easter Sunday that we end up in a place, in a verse, that actually talks about Jesus dying and coming back from the dead. It's a perfect passage for Resurrection Sunday. And I have a feeling that that is not a coincidence As we go through God's word today, we're going to be flipping through various passages. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible or you're not a quick page turner, the verses will be on the screens and you can follow along there. But what we'll see in the Bible today is this. God loves showering sinners with mercy. God loves to shower down, to rain down like a torrential downpour. His mercy on sinners and rebels, on people who disobey him, on people who break his laws, who break his commandments. God loves and takes great delight in forgiving sinners and in being merciful to them, not giving them what they deserve. And that's why Jesus came. And that's why Jesus lived a perfect life, perfectly obeyed God's law. And that's why Jesus died and took the curse of the law upon himself on the cross. And that's why Jesus came back from the dead, because God loves to shower sinners, undeserving sinners, with his mercy. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, and hear the word of the merciful God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Peter tells us that Jesus Christ, God's eternal son, suffered or died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And what Peter means is that Jesus died for sinners like you and me. Jesus was the righteous one. He never sinned once. Can you imagine never, ever, your entire life sinning? 
can you imagine driving through a roundabout and not getting angry? Some of you can't even fathom that. You're like, go through the roundabout and not get angry? Impossible. When Jesus rode his camel or his donkey through a roundabout, he never once got angry. He never honked on his camel horn. He never once yelled out, you idiot, learn how to drive. None of you have said that, have you? You've said far worse, haven't you? Jesus never sinned one time. He was without sin. He was righteous, as Peter says. And then Peter says that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for unrighteous people like you and me. That seems strange, doesn't it? Jesus never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He was perfect. And yet he died for rebels and scoundrels like you and me. Why? Why in the world would Jesus do that? Well, Peter tells us in verse 18 that Jesus died that he might bring us to God. Jesus died for us to bring us back to God. But why would we need to be brought back to God? And how in the world did we get separated from him? Why do we need Jesus in order to get back to God? Can't we just go directly to God? Well, in order to answer these questions, we need to go back to the beginning, to the very beginning. And in order to understand what happened at the very beginning of creation, we need to go back to the very beginning of the Bible, to the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, and you can turn to Genesis chapter 3 now, in the book of Genesis, we find that God created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and they were without sin. He put them in this luscious garden full of all kinds of wonderful things to eat. The weather was probably like it is here on the central coast. It was just perfect, even though the central coast is just a little too cold for me, until about noon. And then I warm up. But this, this perfect environment like the central coast, getting all the fruit that they wanted to from any tree, God's goodness abounded to them. Eat anything you want. Knock yourself out. Have at it. Glut yourselves. But then God told them, there's one tree in the middle of the garden and you cannot eat it and you cannot even touch it. And if you do, you will die. If you disobey me in this regard, you will die. You will die physically and you will die spiritually. Now let's read about what happened because we all know that they ate from that tree. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 7 first. And now the serpent, this is the devil, this is Satan. And now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
Now, we don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden before the devil, the serpent, the snake showed up. But we do know that he showed up. Satan, the devil, showed up as a talking snake. And things began to go downhill once that talking snake showed up and started asking questions. Satan began interrogating Adam and Eve and putting doubts into their mind about God's goodness. Satan lied and deceived them into believing that if they disobeyed God and they ate what was off limits, then their eyes would be opened and then they would become just like God himself. Now, I assume that you know the rest of the story. Adam and Eve took the fruit from the tree that was off limits and they ate and then they realized that they were naked and they made some clothes out of fig leaves to cover their nakedness. And then God showed up. Let me say that again because I want you to think about what just happened. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They ate from the tree that was off limits. They rebelled against their creator, the God of the universe, and then God showed up. What do you think it was like when God showed up? What happened to you as a kid when your mom said, you just wait until your father gets home? Ever do something wrong like that as a kid and your mom told you that? Well, what do you think the atmosphere was like when God the Father came home that day in the garden? Let's read about it, beginning in verse 8 now. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so when Adam and Eve hear the Lord approaching, what do they do? They hide. They, they, they jump behind this nice cluster of trees and they're peeking through. Why? Because dad came home. But what tipped them off that dad had come home? It says two times they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, in the cool of the day. Now you understand that God was just not out for a little stroll, whistling zippity doodah, right? I mean, you as a reader expect God to show up angry, don't you? You expect him to be angry at their rebellion, these people just dissed God. They just rebelled against God. They just flat out ignored his commandments and they did what they wanted to do. So yes, you expect God to come home angry. And I think he did. He came in judgment. God is holy. He is infinitely glorious. And Adam and Eve just rebelled against him. Any God worth his salt should show up angry if this happened to them. And so I believe when dad got home, he was angry. And I say that because of something happening in the Hebrew language 
of verse 8. In the ESV translation, it says that Adam and Eve heard the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. The Hebrew word here for cool is the Hebrew word ruach, which more often in the Old Testament either gets translated as wind or spirit, but for here they translate it as cool, in the cool of the day, but it's often translated most of the time as wind or spirit. So we could word it this way, they heard the Lord God walking in the wind of the day, not the cool of the day, in the wind of the day. Remember, Moses, who I think is the author of Genesis, told us they heard the sound of the Lord. Two times he says that. He heard, they heard, what was the sound? It was the wind blowing. That makes a little more sense. But there are two Hebrew words for day. In the wind of the day, we would say. There are two Hebrew words for day. The Hebrew word yom. There's yom number one and yom number two. The Hebrew word yom can either be translated as day or storm. So yom one is day and yom number two is storm. It's like in English, we have the word D-E-S-E-R-T. Is it uh, a dry place, the desert, or do you desert someone and abandon them? Same spelling, two different meanings and definitions. So the context helps you determine. It's the same in Hebrew. And I think the context here calls for the word, not day, but it calls for the word storm. In fact, Yom 2, this is a lot of Hebrew grammar, I know, but Yom 2 is related to another Semitic language, the Akkadian language, where there is this word for storm, which is very similar to Yom. So I think we should translate it this way, wind and storm. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the wind of the storm, not the cool of the day, in the wind of the storm. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What was the sound? It was the wind began blowing. Now do you see why Adam and Eve are hiding? Because dad came home that day. And he was angry at their sin and rebellion. And how did God show up? He showed up in the wind of the storm. In other words, after Adam and Eve sinned, suddenly there were huge storm clouds that began brewing in the sky. Suddenly these dark, ominous storm clouds began forming and the wind began to pick up. And all of a sudden, the peaceful surroundings of the garden changed and the sky turned black and gray and the wind picked up and suddenly you had these hurricane or tornado-like winds blowing in the garden. That's how God showed up. That's how dad came home that day. And what signaled God's arrival? Dark storm clouds and heavy winds. God came home in the thunderstorm. And now it makes sense why Adam and Eve are hiding. They're scared to death. They've never seen these dark, ominous storm clouds and tornado-like winds before. And so they hide. And then God confronted them and Adam and Eve fessed up. But before they, as they fessed up, they started passing the blame. Adam blamed Eve for his rebellion. It's the woman you gave me. Don't ever say that, man, about your wife to God. Did Eve blame the snake? 
the devil. And so God addressed each one. God told Eve, because of your sin, you're going to have pain in childbirth now. And he told Adam, because of your sin, you're going to have to work hard to get the ground to yield any food for you. But I want to show you what God said to the talking snake, the devil, that day. Look at Genesis 3.14. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now notice what God said in that last verse. One of Eve's descendants, one of her offspring, would come and crush the head of the serpent. This is an allusion to Jesus coming many, many years later. This is what scholars call the first gospel. God made a promise to send a descendant of Eve to crush Satan, the head of the serpent, the devil. And that descendant was God's own son, Jesus Christ, who in fact did come and crush the head of the serpent, the devil, on the cross. Now, you expect God who showed up with storm clouds raging around him to wipe out the devil, the talking snake, at this point, right on the spot, wipe him out. But that was not God's plan. God's plan was to send his son Jesus to crush and defeat the devil at the cross many, many years later. And you would expect God, who showed up with storm clouds raging around him, you would expect him to wipe out Adam and Eve because they just rebelled against him. After all, God told them, if you eat it or even touch it, you're going to die. But they didn't die immediately. Physically, they died physically many years later. Immediately, though, they did die spiritually. But God didn't kill them physically on the spot. He didn't do it. Instead, he was merciful to them. He doesn't give them what they deserve. In fact, God mercifully covered their sin. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now where in the world did God get these clothes for Adam and Eve? There's no Target, no Abercrombie and Fitch, no Gap. So God slaughtered some innocent animals on their behalf. This is very important. This is the only way for a human being to be made right with God, restored to God, brought back to God, only as blood is spilled. The only way that sinners and rebels like you and me can be restored to God is if someone dies and sheds their blood to cover our sin. This is called substitutionary atonement, someone dying in our place, taking our blame so that we are forgiven. And because Adam and Eve are our first parents, because they sinned and rebelled against God, then we are born sinners and rebels too. That's the DNA that we get from our first parents. We're all born sinners and rebels, and we all love to live for ourselves and not God. And that's treason. And that's why we all deserve to die. But that's also why Jesus came. As Peter said, Jesus died to bring us back to God because we were separated from God because we were all born sinners, courtesy of Adam and Eve. We are all born into this world separated from God. But God killed 
and shed the blood of some animals in order to cover Adam and Eve. That was looking forward to, of course, when Jesus would come and shed his blood to cover our sins. God sent his son Jesus to die for us that we could be brought back to God. Jesus died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's grace. That's mercy. That's proof that God loves showering sinners with mercy. Not because we deserve it, because we don't deserve it. God showers us with his mercy because he delights in it. He loves to shower his mercy down like a torrential downpour upon sinners who don't deserve it. He delights to do this on sinners and rebels, on people who disobey him, who break his law, break his commandments. God takes great love, great joy, great delight in forgiving sinners and being merciful to them, not giving them what they deserve. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus lived a perfect life. That's why he died a perfect death. And that's why God raised him from the dead to say, your sacrifice, Jesus, is acceptable. I will accept what you have done on behalf of all these rebels. And so he raised him from the dead. Because God loves showering sinners with his mercy. But what happened after Adam and Eve? You probably know the famous story of their children, Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother Abel. Both of these boys had brought sacrifices to the Lord, but only Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Cain's sacrifice was not accepted by the Lord, so he got jealous of his brother Abel and killed him. But why was Cain's sacrifice not acceptable? Because Cain only brought fruits and veggies from the ground. Abel offered animals. In other words, Abel's sacrifice involved blood. Animals died. But Cain only brought fruit. In fact, it says he brought fruit from the ground, which could just mean any kind of produce that came from the ground. He offered it to the Lord. Cain may have gone to God and said, here's some flowers. Here's my sacrifice, some flowers for you. His offering did not involve any blood and that's why it was not accepted by God. Substitutionary atonement. Someone needed to die in Cain's place. Remember, to be made right with God, blood is required and that's why Cain's sacrifice was rejected. Cain was essentially saying, here God, I brought you some flowers Because I'm not that bad, God. I'm not a bad person. I'm not a sinner. I'm not a rebel. I don't need someone to die in my place as a substitute to be acceptable to you, God, because I'm a good person. I'm not bad. Well, let me ask you today, is that how you view yourself? Do you think, I'm a good person? Or do you think, I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel. You think that you're not that bad and you don't need any blood to be shed to bring you back to God? Listen, you are a sinner. You are a rebel. You were born that way because Adam and Eve are your parents. And their sin messed all of us up. I'm a sinner. I'm a real good one too. If you know me, you know that about me. Man, that guy can sin real good I'm really good at sinning and rebelling and doing my own thing. I have a PhD in sinning. 
Not only do I have a PhD in sinning, I've got postdoctoral studies in sinning because I'm a good bad sinner, meaning I'm very excellent at sinning. We all are because humanity is messed up. We're broken. We're depraved. In fact, that's exactly what God says shortly after the Cain and Abel story. So flip over to Genesis chapter 6 now. What was the world like after Cain killed Abel? What was it like many years later? Look at Genesis chapter 6 beginning in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So every single human being on the planet living in Noah's days was wicked. Every thought and motive was sinful and selfish. And this grieved God's heart. His heart was broken because his creation had turned away from him. Because his creation was so sinful, so rebellious. And so God decided to blot out the whole human race with a flood. Except that God decided to be merciful and to show grace to Noah. Noah found favor, it says in verse 8, which is the Hebrew word for grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. That's grace. Getting what you don't deserve, what you cannot earn on your own. You cannot be good enough to receive God's grace. You cannot earn God's grace. It's unmerited, unearned favor. And so the whole human race in Genesis 6 is wicked, including Noah. But God comes down and gives Noah what he doesn't deserve. He declares Noah righteous, as verse 9 states. Noah is declared righteous by God, meaning he experiences justification by faith. He's declared righteous or blameless by God. Noah did not earn this righteousness. It was given to him as a gift from God. Noah did not earn this. Remember, grace is God's unmerited favor, unearned favor. It's getting what you don't deserve. Noah did not earn God's grace. Noah got or received what he did not deserve. He was declared righteous by God. See, I'm afraid some of you have too high a view of Noah. Maybe you've never noticed in the flood narrative here in Genesis, in the flood story, that Noah never speaks. Noah doesn't say a single word throughout the entire flood narrative. God does all of the talking because it's all of grace, because God gets all of the glory. In fact, the only time that Noah does talk is after he gets drunk and goes to bed naked. 
So the only words that Noah speaks in the Bible, he speaks with whiskey on his breath, hungover, pounding headache, I want to throw up, and I'm in bed naked. There goes your image of Noah. Happy Easter. The only time Noah talks in the Bible is when he's hungover, his breath still reeks of alcohol, he's got a pounding headache, he wants to throw up, he's lying in bed naked, and he pronounces a curse on one of his boys for walking in and looking at him. See, some of you don't believe me, but I told you, God loves showering sinners with mercy. Noah was included among the wicked, sinful people, and God had mercy on him and gave him grace. God declared him righteous, declared him blameless, and then God called him to build the ark and to call others to repentance. And then what happened? I assume you know the rest of the story. God sent the flood to wipe out sinful mankind. How did the flood start, though? With storm clouds. Dark, ominous storm clouds. The sky grew dark. The wind picked up just like it did in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. God's judgment came in the storm in the storm clouds and the rain. God showered down this time, not his mercy, but his judgment on rebellious humanity. And now you know the rest of the story. Noah and his family were saved in the ark with two of each animal. And then God established the covenant with Noah and with all of creation. And he said, I'll never flood the earth again. I promise you that. And the sign of the covenant was the rainbow. The rainbow was God's sign that he would never again send a flood to wipe out all of humanity. The rainbow was the sign of God's mercy, not giving sinners what they deserve. And what's interesting about the rainbow is that the Hebrew word for rainbow, keset, is the word for a warrior's bow, like a bow and arrows. In fact, it's always translated, if I'm remembering correctly, always translated as bow in the Old Testament, except here in Genesis and in Ezekiel 1. This is the Hebrew word for a warrior's bow. So the rainbow, the very colorful rainbow that we see after the rain, is actually a weapon. It's a warrior's bow. So God hung his weapon up in the sky. That's what the rainbow is. It's God's warrior bow that he hung up in the sky to remind us that he is merciful. But what's so significant about that? What's so significant about the rainbow, the warrior bow being hung up in the sky? Well, in the ancient Near East in Noah's day, when two warring parties had reached a peace treaty, they used to hang their bows on their walls to remind them that they were no longer at war with their enemies. They would hang their weapons on the wall to serve as a reminder that they had reached peace and they could not take the weapon down and attack again. The bow, the weapon, reminded them that they were at peace. And this is exactly what God did. God hung his bow on the wall in the clouds. Or to put it in our language, God put his weapon down. Put your weapon down. He put his weapon down. He hung his weapon on the wall. He gave up his right to wipe all of us out. 
he will not wipe out humanity again with the flood, even though today we are just as bad as the people in Noah's day, even though we deserve it. That's just God showering undeserving sinners with mercy. That's God letting you live a life of rebellion and he doesn't come strike you down. He's merciful. He's gracious. Now please understand, that doesn't mean that you're off the hook or I'm off the hook. We're still responsible for our sin. We will give account one day. But God didn't wipe you out this morning or last week, even though you're a rebel, because he's merciful. He doesn't give us what we all deserve or none of us would be here. What God did was give his son Jesus what we deserve. Remember Peter said that Jesus died to bring us to God, the righteous for the unrighteous. So God gave Jesus what you deserve. God gave Jesus what I deserve. God punished his own son on the cross so that we could escape that punishment. And what did the sky look like on the day that Jesus died? What did the sky look like as Jesus hung on the cross? In Mark's gospel, Mark tells us in Mark 15, 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three hours, from noon until three, there was darkness over the land as Jesus hung on the cross. What was that darkness? It was storm clouds. God was showing up in judgment, pouring out all of his wrath against our sin on his own son Jesus on the cross. He came in judgment again. He came in the storm clouds of judgment. Jesus was shedding his blood to bring us back to God. Substitutionary atonement. Somebody dying in our place as a substitute so we could be forgiven and be made right with God. And Jesus died. But the good news of the gospel is that he is alive. He is risen. His resurrection is God saying, I accept your life and your death on behalf of these rebels. And that's why Peter said in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus was made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was resurrected. He came back from the dead. Christians, don't let that become old hat. That is amazing. That is astonishing. He came back from the dead. You've probably seen the passion of the Christ. They're, they're poor portrayal of what Jesus looked like is probably pretty accurate. He was mangled, was in a grave for three days, the funk and the decay, and he comes back alive, and he doesn't look anything like he used to look. He defeated death and crushed the head of the talking snake, the serpent, the devil, Satan. I like what the great reformer Martin Luther said about death. He said this about death. You can show your teeth, but you cannot bite. For God has given us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be praise and thanks. Amen. Death can show its teeth, but it cannot bite. For those who run to Jesus, those who trust in Christ, death can show its teeth, but it cannot bite. Death can growl, Death can foam at the mouth. Death can show its teeth, but it cannot bite. 
because Jesus is alive and those who believe in him will experience resurrection too. It's like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Mr. and Mrs. Beaver relay the Golden Age prophecy to Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy. They say this, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Jesus is coming again, this time to bear his teeth. He has been merciful in not giving you what you deserve. But you will die one day and then you will give account for your life, for your sins, for your life of rebellion against a holy and amazingly merciful God. The only way to be saved from his wrath is to flee to Jesus, to trust in him, to cry out, have mercy on me, Lord Jesus, because I am a sinner. If you don't do that, if you don't repent and fess up and admit to your rebellion and run to Jesus as your joy and your treasure and your delight, then you will see Jesus bear his teeth one day. And on that day you see him bear his teeth, he will have a weapon in his hand, the warrior's bow. And because of your rebellion and defiance, he will shoot the flaming arrows of his wrath out on you for eternity in hell, forever and ever and ever. And I don't want that for any of you. Please listen and understand, God put his weapon down. He has been merciful to you and letting you live this long. But he picked his weapon up 2,000 years ago and shot the arrows of his wrath out on his son Jesus on the cross because of your sin and because of mine. But he will pick it up again one day and he will never stop shooting at you for eternity because of your rebellion. But if you trust in Jesus and you run to him and say, you're my only hope. I believe what the pastor's saying. I believe your word. If you trust in Jesus, then God's warrior bow, his weapon will never be used on you. You become born again, one of his children adopted into his family. And when that happens, he'll never use his weapon on you, but you will see that weapon for eternity. With your eyes, you will see the rainbow for eternity and it will remind you just how merciful God has been to you and his son Jesus. It will remind you that God takes great joy and he delights to shower sinners with his mercy. Because how does John describe the Lord in Revelation chapter four, verses two through three? He says this, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. What's hovering over God's throne? It's a rainbow, a rainbow that we will forever see. We'll forever see the covenant sign of God's mercy in not giving us what we all deserve. When John says that God has the appearance of jasper and carnelian, here's what he means. Jasper, there were several stones in the ancient times called jasper. 
One was very translucent, clear as crystal, and it sparkled and it flashed when it was polished. So what John means when he describes God as being like Jasper, he's saying that God is infinitely glorious and holy. And when John says that God is like carnelian, carnelian has a reddish color like fire. So what John means when he describes God this way is that this is God's anger at sin. This is the righteous, red, hot anger of a holy God at mankind's sin. And so you have God's character, which is holy and glorious, and then you have this red, hot hatred of sin. And then there's the rainbow. The rainbow hovers over the throne of God, suggesting God's mercy, the holiness of God, the glory of God, the red-hot anger of God at man's sin is surrounded by the symbol of mercy, the rainbow. Mercy, what John is saying is that mercy is his nature In other words, divine mercy overarches all of God's deeds. God's mercy overarches all that he does. The rainbow hovering over the throne of God is eternal proof that God loves showering sinners with mercy. God is more willing to pardon than he is to punish. God is more willing to pardon sin than to punish sin. His mercy overarches all that he does. Will you believe it today? Remember the Peanuts cartoon? Here it is again. Lucy looking concerned. Boy, look at it rain, she says. What if it floods the whole world? Linus replies, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. Lucy, now smiling, says, you've taken a great load off my mind. And Linus replies and says, sound theology has a way of doing that. Sound theology has a way of taking great loads off of your mind. Will you let sound theology take a great load off your mind today? Jesus lived perfect life according to God's law. He died perfect death, taking the curse of the law upon himself. And God said, your life and your death is acceptable. I accept that sacrifice on behalf of these scoundrels and rebels and sinners. I accept it. And the proof of that was that God raised him from the dead. That's sound theology. That's true. Will you let it take a great load off your mind this morning? Will you let Jesus, the risen Savior who came back from the dead, will you let him take a great load off your mind today? God delights in showering sinners with mercy. Please don't think you're too far gone. Don't think that you're too dirty or too unclean to come to God. You may be thinking, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. I don't need to know. I know what Jesus has done. Or maybe you're a Christian today and you're like, but you don't know, Pastor, I struggle. Done some horrible things this week. Well, that's why you need to hear what Puritan Richard Sibbs said. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. 
There's more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in us. And there's a lot of collective sin here in this room today, a lot of collective sin over the entire planet, but there's still more mercy in Christ. Will you believe it? Will you run to the risen Savior and say, have mercy on me because it's what you love to do? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful mercy. Our lives are overshadowed by your mercy and yet we've lived any way we wanted to and we take it, your mercy for granted. Thank you that you don't wipe us out. Thank you that you wiped out your son on our behalf. Father, there are people here today who don't know you. Jesus is not their treasure. I pray that you would regenerate them now that they may repent and trust in your son. And for those of us who are in union with your son, Jesus, may we always remember there's more mercy in him than there is sin in us. And may you receive the glory and honor today because your son lives, because he is alive. And may we bask in his goodness, bask in the resurrection this morning because you are the awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.